0: Zafrir was speaking and then Helen and Annie shared, I thought of that passage in 1 Corinthians 15 where he says that no flesh would glory in his presence and how really when they built the tabernacle and the temple and they built it exactly according to pattern, in both instances the glory of God filled it so full that nobody could enter. And what was different when Jesus came is not that he now has allowed flesh to enter, but that he has allowed flesh to be circumcised and cut off so that we can enter without the hindrance of the flesh. And he has inaugurated a new and living way, and we have confident access to the throne of God, to that holy of holies, that certainty of his presence behind the veil not because we can now come in with that proud flesh but because we can crucify the flesh and leave it on the outside amen and enter into that holy place with God and that is repentance amen and we've talked quite a bit about repentance this week in smaller settings and so some of what I want to share is a recap but I feel the need to Keep talking about it on some level as the Lord will allow. My dad has ministered my whole life that repentance is not just being sorry for what you did. It's dying to who you are. It's not just having remorse. We know that in 2 Corinthians 7, he talks about how there are two kinds of sorrow and that one leads to death as in despair, what Judas felt, and one leads to repentance. It isn't repentance. It doesn't encompass the whole of repentance, but it can lead you to repentance. And we've shared this scripture quite a few times this past couple weeks. It's in Galatians 5.16. He says, I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not carry out the desires of the flesh. For the flesh sets its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit against the flesh. For these are in opposition to one another, so that you may not do the things that you please. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Also in Romans 7, he's speaking allegorically of the man still captive, as Paul was before he came to repentance, and he says... But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. So he says there's a war going on, a war between a power that is so compulsive, that is so compelling, that he calls it a law. The law of sin, the law in my members, waging war Against something else that's trying to take hold in his mind amen and he says that it's waging in his body in his life we know the scripture and have quoted from it many times in Romans where he starts off by saying Romans 8 there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus who walk not according to the flesh but according to the spirit and throughout the whole chapter, he draws a stark contrast between walking in the spirit and walking in the flesh. And in the first verse, he says that the reason there's no condemnation is because you're walking in the spirit. That's that grace that has opened to us the new and living way. In verse 13, I read this in the King James for the first time this morning, at least the first time that I could remember, and it said, for if ye live... After the flesh ye shall die. But if ye through the Spirit do mortify the deeds of the body, ye shall live. And that word got me because in most of the other translations it says put to death the deeds of the body. I thought, wow, that's an interesting translation if you mortify the flesh. Lord, are you giving us an insight as to how? how we put to death the deeds of the body and i immediately thought about how the root of the word mortification if you ask someone what does mortification mean i looked it up in the dictionary and they generally say it means to be terribly humbled or terribly embarrassed or terribly ashamed but you can hear the root of mortification is the same as mortuary <laughs> amen it's death It's a kind of humility, it's a kind of abasement, it's a kind of shame that is unto death, that is total, amen. And that's what he's using here. If you mortify, the Amplified renders it like this, it says, if you live according to the dictates of the flesh, indicating that the flesh is a dictator, you will surely die. But if through the power of the Holy Spirit you are... Habitually putting to death, making extinct, deadening the deeds prompted by the flesh, you shall really and genuinely live forever. For all who are being led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. It ties in with all those other scriptures, but it illuminated for me the tension that's at work. And many times you see people who come to a certain level of repentance, they come to a certain level of seeing the problem, seeing the failures, wanting God's will, but they're unwilling to let that self-denial, let that examination of self go to such an extent that it would become mortification. That it would be the most loathsome, odious, horrible thing imaginable in their lives. That it would be seen as the culprit, as the cheater, as the conniver and supplanter of everything God has promised. It's very hard because we're not just talking about some things we need to change, we're talking about ourselves. We're talking about who we are at the core of our being. Paul does not say we were by circumstance children of wrath. He does not say we were by slip-up children of wrath. He says we were by nature children of wrath, just as all the rest. This is not a modification of our behavior only. It is evidenced by a change in behavior, but there is a core uprooting, a core change that's got to take place. The flesh will not put itself to death. Amen? But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. There's no repentance that is just us conjuring up the will in our own time, in our own way, in our own manner, to finally bring this embarrassing flesh at least under wraps. That's not how it happens. It happens when the Spirit of God begins to come to us. And we don't sit there in our insulated complacency, but instead we let our hearts be impaled by the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. And only by that grace of the Spirit, that deadly grace of the Spirit, do we let the sword find its mark and begin to set us free from this body of death. Amen. If it's a war waging in our members, then we've got to pick sides. And we've got to learn to identify and recognize the distinct sound of the two different voices. The voice of the flesh and the voice of God. Amen. The voice of the flesh is always self-protecting. It's always self-preserving. It's always excuse-making. It's always saying it's not as bad as you think it is. Think about it. When Cain, as the first gross sin after the expulsion from the garden, when he murdered his brother and the Lord showed up to cast him out even further than his parents had been, Was his response, I know, God, it's horrible. Or was it an excuse to say, oh, my punishment is too great for me to bear. The flesh is always self-pitiful. It never looks at sin as being as serious and as deadly as God does. And we can see this across the board, whether it's in dying to things in our own lives or if it's in discipling those under our care, we will never bring to bear a sufficient word of power, a sufficient thrust of the sword, if we don't see the sin as deadly. If we don't see the sin as truly, potentially costing us our soul. That's what Jesus is speaking when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. And if your right hand causes you to sin, chop it off. And if your right leg causes you to sin, cut it off. He actually doesn't even just say to cut them off. He said, and cast it far from you every time. And after every time, he doesn't say, so that you can live with more buoyancy in your Christian walk, as evangelicals would have us believe. He says, because it's better to enter heaven maimed than hell whole. The alternative to failing to cut off sin is hell. If you cannot bring that radical severing, the alternative is hell, where their worm dieth not and their flame is never quenched. But you're not going to wake up one morning and decide to put to death your flesh. I mean, your flesh isn't going to wake up one morning and make that decision a house divided against itself cannot stand. If Beelzebub can't cast out Beelzebub, then flesh can't cast out flesh. That's why Paul is saying, if by the Spirit we put to death the deeds of the body, we will live. It's got to change our response and our attitude to the voice of God. When God starts to move, when His Spirit starts to enter in to a conversation or a meeting, there is a prime potential in that moment for something to die in me and for something to be resurrected and to come to life. And if I don't take those opportunities, if I survive the conviction and I wait until I'm good and ready and I wait until it's on my terms, then I am going to be a house divided against itself. In this Galatians passage, he says the flesh sets its desire against the spirit and the spirit sets its desire against the flesh. So there are two longings, as I shared recently, there are two longings that are at work when someone is trying to come to repentance. James said the Lord has made his spirit to yearn jealously for us. There's a longing. When Paul is on the road to Damascus and the light of God's truth knocks him off his horse and brings him to a place of humility and then he's waiting in that house for Ananias to come to him and pray for him. There's a war going on inside this man. God is longing for this man. The spirit is yearning jealously For this man. There's some sense that he's feeling. Of the purpose he has in God. Of the worthiness of God. Of the destiny he's supposed to fulfill. And that's the spirit yearning. And then the flesh is saying. Should you really be here? Why don't you get up and leave? You don't even know these people. They may reject you. And the flesh has a longing. Has a desire. That is in opposition to the spirit. And you're not going to just quench the desire of the flesh if you don't get in touch with the desire of the Spirit. Because one sets its desire against the other. Someone who comes into the church and has a vibrant flesh with all of its desires and its ambitions and its vainglory and its pride and all of this, but never catches on to the purpose of God in the world never catches on to the hope that he can participate in and sharing God's love with people he's never going to really overcome the flesh even Peter when he had failed epically and Jesus confronts him on the Sea of Galilee after the resurrection Jesus is trying to show Peter the flesh that is still alive inside of him he has not been converted as Jesus indicated amen and yet every time, Jesus is trying to also remind him that there is a purpose for him. Feed my lambs. It's almost like he's saying, you're unworthy, but here's your purpose. You're unworthy, but here's your purpose. He's wanting him to realize what God's called you to cannot coexist with this still living flesh inside of you. This self-preserving carnal nature, amen, but God has a call on your life, God has a purpose, and Paul is indicating that we've got to be able to choose sides in this countervailing desire that is taking place between the flesh and the spirit. In every meeting, there's something inside of you that is yearning to get on the side of the spirit and to see what we've been singing about and talking about, see God's purpose advance, and then there's something else that's suppressing you and whispering in your ear and telling you you need to be quiet and you need to stay still and you don't need to get a breakthrough, or whatever it is, they're always there in this perfect little tension until you decide that one of them is going to be Lord. Amen. One of them is going to win this tension, this implacable opposition as it has been translated. I thought of this passage in Matthew that we are all familiar with. Jesus says, Whoever denies me before men, I will also deny him before my Father who is in heaven. And the word that he's using there is the exact same word that he uses in Luke when he says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. So the denial that we would give to Jesus is the denial that we should give to the flesh. Amen. He says, if you deny me before men, I'm going to deny you before my Father who is in heaven. It means to disclaim, to disown, to renounce, to decline, to refuse, to deny, to contradict when you learn the machinations of your carnal nature, when you learn how it takes you captive, how it wiggles you out of conviction and pushes you into sin again, you're going you're to become finely tuned to its reasoning, to its perspective, to its feelings even. And you're going to deny it when you disown that when you renounce that, when you disclaim it. Amen. This is just me, someone says. Well, to deny your flesh is to say, this is not who God made me to be. This is who God called me to put to death. To refuse it. No, you're not going to have your way in this moment. To contradict it. How much victory would we gain if we just learned to question and contradict what we think is us? When it's rising up in defensiveness. When it's feeling sorry for itself and pouting. When it's starting to judge others. Did he not say if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged? Amen. If we would learn to contradict That nature inside of us that is opposed to God's desire and God's spirit, we would not be judged. This desire, this countervailing desire, was spoken of in Cain's sin. Remember what the Lord said to him just before he murdered Abel? He asked him first, Why is your countenance downcast? Why is your face downcast? And he said, If you do what's right, you'll be accepted. He was basically telling Cain, I don't know why you're behaving like somebody did something to you. This is all on you. If you did what was right, you would be accepted. But he said, and if you do not, well, sin is crouching at your door. And its desire is to have you. But you must master it. Amen. There's that desire of sin. That crouching thought pattern. That crouching defensiveness. That crouching ambition and vainglory. Amen. That crouching addiction. It's right there. It doesn't just want you to do something. It wants to have you. It wants to be your Lord. It wants to be the prince of your life and control everything you do. But he says, you must master it. You must choose a side here, Cain. You must get on the side of the spirit, of the voice that is coming to you right now, telling you you can master it. And put that sin's neck under your foot and say no to ungodliness. Thank you, Jesus. The word that Jesus uses for deny, is also the same word that Paul uses in Titus 2.11 when he says, The grace of God that brings salvation has appeared to all men, discipling, training, and teaching us to say no to ungodliness, to deny worldly pleasure, and to live sensibly and godly in this present age. Amen. Amen. The grace of God teaches us to deny ourselves. It does not absolve us. It does not exempt us from the penalty of not denying ourselves, as the church world teaches. Rather, it empowers us to deny ourselves. And it teaches us how to do it. Amen. But you cannot be someone unmoved by the Spirit, passive and indifferent toward the move of god and the conviction of his word and expect that you're going to gain a decisive victory over your carnal nature because the only way you're going to defeat the carnal nature is by the spirit when the spirit is moving if you can get your flesh under that sword you're going to get free amen and it's not trying to get a blessing it's trying to get a killing. Amen. It's trying to position your flesh in the target so that the spirit hits it. Amen. The word that Paul uses when he says mortify, it's the same word they used in Matthew when it says, Now when morning came, all the chief priests and elders of the people conferred together against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him to Pilate. That is the same word Paul uses when he says, if by the Spirit you are putting to death or mortifying the flesh, you will live. Amen. If you're not walking in that repentance, there is no life. Amen. Flesh has taken back over and you're not going to be able to enter that certainty of God's presence behind the veil. Amen. What are some of the ways that we prevent the Spirit from doing its work when we are sitting in a meeting or in a conversation or in a prayer time or reading the word and that sword which is sharper than any sword piercing to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart how do we deflect that discerning sword what are some of the ways how do we sit in God's presence how do we hear a word that should change us Encounter the spirit that should transform us and yet walk out and pretty much stay in the same cycle of disobedience week after week, month after month, year after year. We develop an ungodly immunity to the spirit. We get a vaccination so that we're not responsive to the spirit. And that vaccine may be this is for somebody else. It may be, I already came to repentance. That's one of the worst, most effective. It may be, I was already baptized in the Spirit, so I don't have to walk in the Spirit. I'm a son of God because 30 years ago I spoke in tongues. Amen. These are some of the vaccines that work. Or it's this callous that can form over your heart. After being in God's presence so many times and not responding, not humbling yourself, not mortifying your flesh... Pretty soon, that sword just starts skipping across the surface. It's not really penetrating. Amen. Because just by reason of stubbornness, you've let a hard skin build up on the outside. Amen. The New Testament talks about some of the ways that we can respond to the Spirit and make its work of no effect. In Acts 7, stephen said to the people you stubborn and stiff-necked people you are still heathen and uncircumcised in your hearts and ears you are always actively resisting the holy spirit as your fathers did before you he goes on and says which one of the prophets did they not kill One of the first and most prime fruits of repentance is a recognition and submission to godly authority. That's the fruit that John the Baptist was speaking of when he said, you go bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Do you remember? And they went away and they never bore those fruits. But we find out what the fruit was when Jesus goes and starts cleansing the temple turning over the tables, shaking out the money boxes, rebuking them, and they rise up and they say, by what authority do you do these things, and who gave you this authority? They challenge his authority to bring a cleansing word into their lives. And immediately he takes them back to the baptism that they initially sought but came short of. And he says, the baptism of John. Was it of man or was it of God? Amen. They apparently thought it was of God when they went out for it, but they apparently didn't think it was worth bearing the fruits of repentance to receive. And he asks them this when they reject his authority. If repentance is removing self from being the Lord of our life, then we can understand why a fruit of repentance would be a recognition of the authority that Christ is operating when he cleanses the temple. They should have said, where else can we go? We may not understand this. We may not have expected this. This may be completely out of character of anything that's happened before. But praise God, where else can we go? You alone have the words of eternal life. But because they were still sitting on the throne, they saw his exertion of authority as a direct challenge, and they were offended by it. Amen. By what authority and who gave you this authority? They didn't understand the kind of authority because they didn't move in that kind and they didn't understand where he had gotten it. Amen. So if a prime fruit of repentance is to know the voice of God and when it begins to exert its will through whomever he chooses to recognize it and to say, yes, Lord, amen. This isn't what I planned. This isn't what I thought was coming but I know God is speaking to me. Amen. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Amen. And that's what he said after he left the temple. Amen. So it is a stubbornness that causes us to resist the Holy Spirit. Stubbornness is certainty that we're right. Amen. Conviction misplaced. Instead of being in the Spirit, being in the opinion of man. Amen. That's what stubbornness is. He said, you stubborn and stiff-necked people, you always resist the Holy Spirit. Well, these are people who cannot be putting to death the flesh. These are people who are not walking in repentance because they are so convicted about their rightness that they cannot feel the conviction of the Spirit of God. Amen. We can obstruct the Spirit's path through self-preservation. Remember when Jesus talked about dying and Peter stepped in and said it wouldn't be? What did Jesus say to him? He says, you are a stumbling block to me. Jesus is saying, I've got a path of self-denial ahead of me. I've got a path that leads to Calvary, that leads to the cross. And this is a hard path to walk. It's a rugged, steep, narrow path treacherous path that's going to cause exceeding sorrow even to the point of death. And he says to his friend, you just went and put a pothole in this path. You just landed a boulder in the middle of this path. And how did he do it? Because you love or you are mindful of the things that be of man. Your mind is full of natural things. So here's another way that we put a stumbling block in front of ourselves or others and prevent self-denial and the crucifixion of the flesh when we get infatuated with the things that be of man. Amen. Rather than the things that be of God. There's those countervailing desires. Do you see that? Amen. Jesus, he was aware of those two desires, but he was focused. His face was set like a flint to Jerusalem. He was not going to be moved away from this desire of the Spirit of God. That was his surrender prayer. Father, if it's possible, please, nevertheless, I would do nothing to hinder or diminish your will being done. That's someone who has a priority, who knows which of those voices is Lord of his life. Amen. Paul indicates that we can quench the Spirit. Amen. We can just throw water, comments, dishonor, disorder, casualness. We can throw water on the flame of the Spirit. In 1 Thessalonians 5.19, he says, Do not quench the Spirit and do not despise prophetic utterance. He wouldn't tell us not to do it if it weren't possible for us to do it. Have you ever been sitting in a meeting or a room, a conversation and a word started coming, just a gentle word, and all of a sudden you just felt this current of the Spirit piercing hearts, maybe helping someone, and someone just made some boisterous comment that totally rearranged the conversation, and before we know it, we're doing something else. That's quenching the Spirit. That's just taking a bucket of water of flesh and dousing this little ember of God's Spirit. And so we're not going to be able to put to death the deeds of the flesh unless we put away the quenchers to the Spirit. Amen. we got to learn to have a little more honor, a little more circumspection. Amen. A little more weightiness, a little more awe toward the move in the Spirit of God. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. He says, do not quench the Spirit. In Ephesians 4, he says, do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. And then he talks about some of the things that could grieve it. Without taking a breath, he says, let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you along with all malice. The Spirit is not going to burst into flame and carry you and empower you if you're full of bitterness, wrath, and And all of the rights to self that produces that sense of bitterness. Amen. Can someone be bitter if they don't believe they deserve anything? And yet they didn't get it? If you believe you don't deserve anything, but you didn't get anything, can you be bitter about not getting anything? (laughs) No. Bitterness is rooted in a sense of deservedness. Amen. And then he seems to tie the wrath and the anger and the clamor and the slander to all of that. We've seen people who were just ruffled as all get out because their flesh was offended. They didn't like this and how dare anybody and so on and so forth. Amen. That's not someone who has dethroned the flesh. Amen. It's who we are. That God is wanting us to put to death in repentance. It's not just what we do. Those are the fruits that will fall off when the root is dethroned. Amen. It's that perspective. It's those feelings. It's those attitudes that are us. Amen. It's our nature. And when he fills us with his spirit, he's given us another nature. And now the war begins. Now the cognitive dissonance begins between... Who's going to be Lord? And if unto you therefore who believe, he is precious. But to you who do not believe, he is the stone of stumbling and the rock of offense. They stumble because they were disobedient. Amen. What God is calling us to is not more suppression of the flesh, more management of the flesh. He's not calling us to teach the flesh to be polite, like a good border collie, who knows a good handful of commands. And generally behaves well in the presence of strangers. That's not what he's calling us to. He's calling us to see something wretched inside of us. Something wretched that is powerful and resilient and determined. Whose dictates are like law in our lives. Apart from a more powerful spirit. Amen. But that spirit is only going to be as powerful as we let it be. Amen. In 2 Timothy 3.5, he talks about the apostates. And he finishes this gruesome catalog of all of their fruits. And then he says, they have a form of godliness, but they deny the power thereof. That's the same word that Jesus used when he said, if you deny me. How do we deny him? We deny him the same way we deny the flesh. When the flesh gives us an impulse and we say no to it we've denied the flesh. When the flesh gives us an excuse and we contradict it, we deny the flesh. When Jesus in the Spirit gives us an impulse and we say no to it, we deny Him. And when He gives us a conviction and we contradict it, we deny Him. We deny Him in this unspoken, unseen battle in the mind. Amen. Where we're arguing over which voice is going to win the fight. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. It's actually the same word that the writer of Hebrews uses, and this scripture always gets me. He says, By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking for a reward. Amen. So what he's saying is when Moses grew up, he had an identity that wasn't that of a slave. He had this potential identity, and apparently people were trying to put that identity on him. Apparently people were bowing and, doing whatever Egyptians did to nobility and saying, this is the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And the writer of Hebrews says, by faith, he refused those accolades. He had faith. God, if I slough this off, if I lose this image, there is a better reward coming as one who is part of the people of God. Amen. And that word refused is the same word Jesus used when he said you must deny yourself and whoever denies me. That's that contradiction. Moses was saying, no, no, I'm not. That's not who I am. Amen. It takes faith to renounce the identity that the world would foist on us or that our upbringing would give us. It takes faith to have no identity except as part of the people of God who are enduring reproach. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I read this quote this morning from C.S. Lewis, and he said, to surrender a self-will inflamed and swollen with years of usurpation is death. We all remember this self-will as it was in childhood, the bitter, prolonged rage at every thwarting the burst of passionate tears, the black, satanic wish to kill or die rather than to give in. Hence, the old type of nurse or parent was quite right in thinking that the first step in education is to break the child's will. Their methods were often wrong, but not to see the necessity is, I think, to cut oneself off from all understanding and spiritual law. And if now that we are grown up, we do not howl and stamp quite so much, that is partly because our elders began the process of breaking or killing our will, our self-will in the nursery. And partly because the same passions now take more subtle forms and have grown clever at avoiding death by various compensations. Hence the necessity to die daily However often we think we have broken the rebellious self, we shall still find it alive. And we must put it to death. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. I think if we could see how God sees that supplanter, that conniver, that flesh inside of us, he would see a temper tantrum child stamping his foot, refusing to eat his food. Amen. Getting offended, screaming and crying, and maybe... If we saw the way God sees it, maybe we would see its archenemy, the voice of the Spirit of God, and we would give it more reign, more control in our lives. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise you, Jesus. Amen. We would learn to recognize the flesh so that we could contradict it. We could disown it. We could disallow it. We could deny it. And we would learn to recognize the Spirit so that if by the Spirit we could mortify the flesh, we would live. Amen. Thank you, Jesus. All my fears All my dreams My ambitions I lay them all at your feet Not my will But yours be done. For you're my father, and I'm your son. Your will, oh Lord, I've got to find. Your will, oh Lord. Your will. Your will, oh Lord, it's all I see. Your will.